Hello coaches, welcome back to the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. This is the second in our series of interviews with an expert. Uh, this month I speak with Dr. Bill Moore, who also happens to be a former college tennis coach. Dr. Moore is an influential author, international speaker, and executive coach. He has trained world-class athletes, performing artists, and business professionals all over the world. In the past several years, Dr. Moore has dedicated much of his professional time to helping sale professionals be more effective in their prospecting abilities. In this podcast, we talk about how coaches can go from having a fear of failure to having ex um, excitement for success, the beliefs held by confident recruiters, how a coach can manage their reluctance around self-promotion, and much, much more. Dr. Bill Moore, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Strange time we're finding ourselves in. It's a definitely a challenging and a very unique time. Yes. Really, can you tell the audience a bit about your experience as a college tennis coach, where you coached, how many years? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I was... Uh, I grew up in Florida playing tennis, and I played at an NAAI school in North Carolina called Pfeiffer College. Mm -hmm. Now it's Pfeiffer University. And then uh, traveled a little bit, didn't make any money, but I got to see a good bit of the world, and then went back to school at University of Virginia and was the assistant tennis coach there while I was in graduate school, mm -hmm. and then got my first job at East Stroudsburg. Because you got to remember, this was a time when I think probably 90% of the coaches also taught. <laughs> yeah. mm. And so I was, uh, I was with these trials with dual appointment as the director of tennis. And I taught in the uh, physical education department, sports psychology and that kind of thing. And then, uh, went to, was there for a year and then went to East Carolina and I was at East Carolina as the director of tennis and, uh, I had an appointment as the uh, in the sports sciences, uh, and yeah, so it was it was it was a really good time of life. It's um, mm -hmm. you know we we didn't have a lot of money, we didn't do a lot, but it was um, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. So you coached the you were you oversaw both the men's and women's teams at East Carolina. Yeah, it got, it got a little hairy because it's just so much. So I got, had an assistant basically do the women, and I did the men, um, you know, and that's pretty much how it went. I was responsible for everything, so. Mm -hmm. But it was uh, it was nice to have somebody do part of that because when you're doing that and teaching, I taught in the graduate and undergraduate program, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it sounds like it. I can't yeah. even uh, yeah. imagine. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah, so, yeah. so you you then left the the college coaching world. You moved more into sports psychology, but you ended up uh, mm -hmm. working, I think, mostly with, with golfers, but but athletes in, in all sports. Uh, and then you uh, pivoted a little bit into the the music world, and then uh, into the business world, and and kind of yeah. um, took the the lessons that you learned. As, as a college tennis coach and then early days of sports psychology and, and applied it to to both music and business as well but what what are some of the common themes 
that maybe emerge from those that succeed in making changes to their thinking and habits and, and help lead them to higher levels of success in their chosen field? Is, is there some like a through line that goes through sports, music and business that allows these kind of, I guess, uh, success stories or, or experts to um, to really make those changes in their thinking? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's one of the things I did learn from working in so many domains, performance domains, is that human performance is human performance is human performance. It really doesn't you know, matter what, um, what domain you're in, business, sport, or, or music. Um, but, you know, I, so I got out of graduate school and then started coaching tennis, and I do feel that tennis is probably the best sport to it was like a postgraduate you know psychology degree you know because you're able to coach a, a athlete at, in a time where they're you know emotionally uh you know not quite right and, and, and the confidence and so it's all happening right in front of you and so you have to do something and so that really sort of taught me you know, the coaching piece was very, very helpful in sort of teaching how to talk to somebody in the heat of the battle. Mm -hmm. um, because you need, a, you need a certain, some people, you know, you got to, you know, be, you know, firmer than others. Some you got to joke around and, you know, everybody kind of knows that. And then when I went to Oklahoma, um, I was the director of mental training there and started working with a variety of sports and, and then the school of music called and wanted me to come over and, and give a talk. And I didn't know anything about musicians. And, and so what happened was that the dean basically said, you know, why don't you come over and give a talk to our students and faculty? And I was thinking it was going to be a small group of people, but the University of Oklahoma has one of the largest music schools in the country. And so, you know, I walk in, there's this huge auditorium and, you know, like, holy cow. And um, anyway, I ended up teaching in the, uh, school of Music, Performance Psychology for Musicians, and um, worked there for probably eight years. And then after that, went into, uh, I, while I was still in Oklahoma, um, I was giving a talk at the World Golf Championships, and um, uh, Earl Lutner, who's a guardian agent, you know, said, hey, why don't you come talk to some of my guys? And he's in Pittsburgh. And so that sort of opened up this another whole new field of working with uh you know sort of high performing insurance sales mm -hmm. um you know domain where uh again i learned a, a tremendous amount um and so yeah it's been an interesting thing and I, I i will say that when you think of you know a school of music, it's a lot like an athletic department, you know, that the piano faculty is a powerful faculty, it's like football. And then, you know, you've got strings, percussion, vocal, wind ensemble, single read, double read. You have, you know, all these instruments and they all have their own kind of performance type cultures, just like football, basketball, baseball mm. do. Um, but there's so many threads that sort of run through all these that are very generic to all of them. And, and one of the things is, uh, and I think with, here at Colgate, we certainly find this is, you know, when you think of a musician, 
you're dealing with somebody who typically is sort of perfectionistic, overachieving, a good student. Uh, they practice a lot more than athletes do. They perform three or four times a semester, which is very little time to perform. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas athletes, you know, they're, you know, they're players who practice, you know, musicians are practicing through plays. Music is not a performing art. It's a, a practicing art. Mm-hmm. And so the question for musicians was, how do I practice in ways that transfers to performance? Uh, and so we came up, you know, with a bunch of things for them and, uh, athletes still play while they're practicing and they, you know, so it's a little different, but, um, with the salespeople, it was much more of a self-image. Uh, how do I see myself at this next level? And, um, you know, any, any limitations that I impose on myself, I've got to address and change. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> there's a lot of, I don't know if there's one thing that sort of threads its way through, but there's a lot of similarities across all those domains. Mm-hmm. Could you name a, just a, a handful of them then maybe? Well, I would say, I think the idea of, you know, the, 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 the perfectionist overachiever uh, basically has very uh, distinct characteristics. You know, they tend to be great practicers, they come early, they stay late, they're very coachable, uh, and they get in performance and they never quite perform like they do in practice. And so mm. they have this mindset of, you know, I'm trying to do it correct. And so they're really working hard to, on this correctness piece, uh, technically. Uh, and it, that's good for practice, but in, in a performance, you need to sort of let that go. Uh, and I found that that's, you know, whenever you come across someone who is a perfectionist overachiever, I think that's the biggest issue is they get in their own way. Mm. You know, they overthink, they overanalyze, uh, they overinstruct. <laughs> so getting them to back off that, you know, when I was at, um, I, would, I would go up and see Silvio at uh, Cornell and, and, you know, he's, you know, at the Ivy League, you know, you tend to get those players and Sylvia tends to be one of those guys, you know? And so it's just, you know, learning how to, to let that go is, is really important. And, um, it's, it's hard to do because it's got you where you are today. And so the natural tendency is to, you know, rely on that to sort of get you the rest of the way. And it's Mm. just not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, uh, and then confidence is always a big one. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, a big reason I wanted to have you on the podcast was, was to kind of talk about uh, really recruiting and, and kind of sales because I find your, your, your work, your combination of work in the tennis world, obviously, but in, in these other domains such as, as uh, music and, and now in, in, uh, in the business world, but more specifically working, helping insurance brokers uh, tackle their fears around selling their products and making prospecting calls. And that's similar to yeah. how college tennis coaches feel as well. I mean, they, they often uh, aren't willing to kind of go beyond 
what they think their their ceiling is it's like okay well these are the players within my range uh, i'm comfortable calling them but if somebody has a little higher ranking or some better results oh well they're not going to be interested and why would they be interested in my program or or me and and so what what are some of the issues that that you see that hold people back from from achieving their sales or recruiting goals yeah that's a good question you know i mean I, I think this is where you get into self-image at a lot of this, you know, because when you, if you think about, you know, why did you get into coaching, right? So I got into coaching because I love working with athletes. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't get into coaching because I like telling people what I do, right? I, I, and so w you have to be able to make that shift um, because, you know, we tend to have these irrational beliefs around, you know, if I just put my nose to the grindstone and I keep working on this, that good things will happen. Well, that's not true. I mean, it's, it's an irrational belief because if you don't find ways to get the word out, then, uh, you know, no one's going to come to your program, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think is the difference between selling insurance and, and recruiting is when you're recruiting, you can sell your program. You can sell, if you really truly believe that what you have is good for kids. Mm -hmm. And so now, and if you have conviction around that, if you truly believe that, it's not that hard to get in front of a parent or a group of people and talk passionately about what your program does for kids um in insurance it's you know it's a little different in that you're more promoting yourself mm -hmm. and you know what i find that's an issue because you know the, the, a lot of people see self-promotion as bad you know and right. so uh they just aren't they don't really do it that well Mm -hmm. And so, but, you know, so I, I think the idea of selling a program is much easier and the more you can get your hands around what it is you offer and that it's the best, uh, you know, that, that you can do that. But the, um, yeah, so I, had mm -hmm. a, I don't know what the, yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, so uh, you, you talked about self image there. It's, it's often, yeah. so if, if, if coaches are maybe struggling with that a, a little, you know, more, um, you know, concerned about promoting themselves and, and really struggle with that and, and maybe, you know, going out there in social media and putting themselves as, as the face of the program, mm -hmm. it's, it's really getting them to think less about that they're promoting themselves and it's it's really promoting really understanding their program their university um all the strengths uh, that 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 campus and that program offers and for them to to really uh think about it in those terms rather than them promoting themselves is that yeah. the best way yeah, to sum it up absolutely. yeah absolutely and I, I don't and i don't think that's a big leap for a lot of coaches mm -hmm. i think that they so yeah that's what i do now that's great kind of thing. I think the biggest difference with um, why do some people in insurance really make a lot of money and other people don't, you know, what is the, and the, and I tell you that it's the same as recruiting. Mm -hmm. The difference is the system. You know, they have a system 
that they have worked on, they've evaluated, and that they put in place every day. And it starts with you've got to sort of see that this is a huge part of your job. Mm-hmm. And so now if that's the case, why not, you know, like when I was in East Carolina, I went to the football coach and I said, you know, how do you guys recruit, you know, and then they have this recruiting coordinator and they have all this stuff on the board. And I'm like, wow, that's, you know, they put a lot of thought in that. <laughs> and if they had a system, right. And, and so, you know, for insurance people, it's they want 10 meetings a week. You know, that's a lot of meetings. I mean, that's not, you know, phone calls. That's meetings. Right. And if you do that, then you're going to be successful, right? So you really have to work. If you're going to get, you know, 10 meetings a week, you got to make, you know, 25, 30 calls, you know, almost daily to mm. get those meetings. And so, um, you know, it does require a system that, you know, you come into, you, you, you block off this much time. I'm going to make this many phone calls, you know, between 10 and whenever, um, and you stick to it. And the other, the other, the other piece of this is it's not personal, right? And so that's where, you know, the other successful salespeople are, you know, if they get rejected, you know, it's not a big deal to them. It's just, okay, let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next one. And so it's not a personal affront to them uh, when they, you know, someone says no. And, and, then, and then, you know, you got to qualify who it is you're talking to. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to call recruits, you know, there are certain recruits that are just not going to come to your school. You know, so how much time do you want to spend on, you know, those kids versus kids that may want to come to your school? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another, you, you know, you got the A, B and C list of people and, but, um, you know, I, I think that's another thing is it's time. Right. It's, it's how much time do you really want to spend recruiting, you know, the mm-hmm. athletes that can come play for you. Well, I think that's, yeah, it's, it's often a surprise for, for young coaches that they've, like you said, you've got into it mm-hmm. to develop athletes or develop young people into adults or, or, you know, you're, you're trying to give back to an experience that you had, you got something out of your college experience that you're trying to give to others, but you kind of forget about the, the promotional side of things, the, the sales side of things, and that you need to spend a huge amount of time recruiting. And, and that's just, uh, I think that's lost on a lot of coaches early on. So, um, in your, in your book, fearless prospecting, you talk about kind of a fear of failure versus an excitement for success. So how can coaches maybe make the switch when it comes to thinking about recruiting and and the possibilities for their program? I think some of them are in this kind of fear or failure, fear, fear of failure mindset and, and haven't, quite found a way to get excited about recruiting or really embedding it into kind of their daily habits and and their routines and understanding that it is the lifeblood of their program. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you said, I think the idea that it has to be incorporated into a daily system that you're making calls every day Mm -hmm. uh, or you're writing handwritten notes, 10 handwritten notes every day. You know, and, and that's that's the hard part is really, you know, because you don't see any immediate gratification. There's no real payoff until, you know, it, it comes. But but that's how it's done. I mean, it, it's tough. And so um, when these um, 
one of the things. So, what, what was the question? I'm sorry, I forgot the. Well, just just around the fear of failure versus excitement for success. Yeah. That that how, how yeah. do we uh, help coaches get a little bit more excited about recruiting yeah. and thinking about okay, this this some of this work is is kind of drudgery. I'd much prefer to be on the court uh, working yeah. with the players. But but yeah. um, how do they f- kind of flip their thinking about recruiting? Yeah. Well, if you believe, if you honestly believe that your program is good for kids, whether it's male or female, that it's good for these people, then, mm-hmm. then, then why not get the word out? Why not share it with people, you know, and let them know that, uh, this is, this program is good. I mean, it, it does everything it needs to do to benefit your son or your daughter or whatever. Uh, so this idea of, you know, fear is an interesting concept because you, we need some of it mm-hmm. in order to get anything done, you know. And so it's like if you, you know, if you AD switching, you get a new AD. Now you're like, man, I gotta, I gotta really do something. So sometimes <laughs> it lights a fire on people, right? Um, but other times people are like, they get so they get paralyzed by it, mm-hmm. where they like, oh God, I don't know if I can. I don't, you know, I'm going to get fired anyway, so what's the point, right? So um, the, the idea of, of getting excited versus being fearful, uh, think about your program and think about the things that, are, that you've accomplished, that you've done, that you've done for these kids that are so meaningful, even if it's just relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, find the things in your program that are the strengths and that, and you may want to talk to some of your alumni and say, you know, what were the things that you really liked about being part of our program? And get some information from people who have come through your program and then, you know, reword it mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, get excited about it. I mean, I, I never had trouble getting excited about my program. I don't know mm. how that uh yeah. Yeah, I think I think coaches in general are are excited about their program, but when it comes to like you say the the um uh what's the terminology you use around kind of call reluctance and right. and actually picking up the phone um to to make that call uh and and if they think the players may be just a little bit out of their range and, and like you said they, the coaches have to make decisions as to you know, what, what are realistic recruits and, and what are just, you know, you're kind of wasting your time, but there's probably yeah. that, that piece in the middle where, uh, I think coaches all across the country, uh, especially the most successful ones at, at any division have proved coaches wrong that, that yeah. they thought the, the previous coach there was never able to get this type of player. And then a new coach comes in and all of a sudden they're getting the top prospects, the blue chip uh, prospects or whatever it is to their program and, and coaches around, you know, uh, their, their competitors or whatever are scratching their head going, well, the old coach wasn't able to do this. And nobody thought, you know, a player would go to that school because it's, you know, in a certain part of the country or, or the academics aren't as strong or whatever it is, but these coaches are able to prove those other coaches wrong and get those players there so so they're obviously Mm -hmm. doing something they're implementing a a system um they're not having this call reluctance so it's 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 i think coaches yes they believe in their program um they believe in the work that they're doing with their players 
but I think they do struggle to express that to, to recruits and, and boosters or donors or, or have a system that they're at least doing it uh, on a very consistent basis. And, and uh, again, they want to maybe lean towards what they're comfortable with, which is, which is being on the tennis yeah. court or building a team culture. So um, yep. I don't know that there's a, a question there, but it's it's more around maybe maybe how you're helping the insurance brokers with their call reluctance. I mean, I think you know what are what are some of maybe the beliefs of of confident recruiters? Yeah, well, it's really more the actions of uh, of these recruiters. I mean, it's one thing you know. You said, where does belief come from? Where it comes from doing something, mm. right? And so even these new young insurance guys that come in, you know, that don't have the confidence, don't have the belief, you know, they start by doing, you do something, you make a call, you get rejected, you make another call. And then, then you go on a, a visit with some a more experienced guy. And so you end up over time, because you've done it, you start to believe in yourself more. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, as far as college recruiting goes, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I don't know what else to say mm -hmm. other than it's such an important part. And I think what happens with coaches is that that's not why I'm in it. Mm -hmm. I'm not in it to, to see myself doing what I need to be doing to recruit players. I want to train and coach players, right? Mm -hmm. And so... That to me is the biggest difference in where we are today versus 25 years ago when I coached, right? Mm -hmm. And so, because nobody really, you know, was a real, you know, maybe the top 10 schools went after recruiting, but everybody was kind of like, you know, we've got to develop kids, we've got to develop our players, let's get them in. Um, but, I, you know, what's happened with this over time is, I think coaches kind of become resentful toward these other coaches who really don't coach. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, some of the top coaches have no idea about coaching, right? <laughs> but they're recruiters, right? And so, and so then we resent them for that. You know, I spent all my life learning the game of tennis and how to talk to kids and really working on this stuff. And this guy, he doesn't know anything and he's, and he's beating the crap out of me. Well, instead of being resentful of it, if your program is, you know, I mean, then find out what is it that they're doing that I can do, mm -hmm. you know, and what it is, they've got a system. They've got, they make X number of calls a day. They do handwritten notes, they do social media, and that's what they do. And that takes time. And, um, you know, I don't know. They, they make the time to do it. If they miss practice, they miss practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's happening out there a lot, and and uh, I think it happens in in all sports, not just tennis. And uh, we we waste a lot of time uh, worrying about what the the next program is or is not doing, and the quality of the coaching or whatever it is. It, it doesn't really matter, you know. You've got a program that you're trying to maximize and uh, help it reach its potential and and beyond. And um, yeah, learn what you can from from everybody is is uh, what I try and get across the coaches and take the good and the bad and apply what you can to, to yourself and your program. But um, so, so what are maybe, I mean, other than 
than taking action, what what are some other tools that coaches can maybe use to to build their confidence when it comes to to recruiting? Well, you know, obviously, listen to how you talk to yourself, right, about what it is, the recruiting, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and you know, it's, it's amazing how many times you, you block out time to make calls, and then you're like, eh, you start finding something else to do, and you're like, eh, I'll go find this to do, and it's, now it's 3 o'clock, I didn't have time to make calls today. Mm-hmm. Well, you did have time to make calls today. You know, you just didn't set it as a priority. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that. I've got to do this uh, at this time. And so that is really more an issue of what you're telling yourself, right? And staying busy, quote unquote, and, you know, so now I can't make the call. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the confidence, you know, it's, 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 it's a funny thing. I mean, you can, you can say, well, is it positive thinking? It's not positive thinking. You know, it's not going to hurt you. It's, 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 it's not positive thinking. And so I knew another thing is, well, when I get negative and I get fearful, I actually make the calls, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're sort of making them out of a, you know, the fear has initiated your action. You'll never sustain it because of fear, but it's maybe not bad to at least get something started, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and again, it's, and again, how do you see yourself? You know, I mean, you in today's environment, you have got to see yourself as a multifaceted coach. You're a CEO. You know, you recruit, you talk to alumni, you talk to parents, you know, you organize events, you, you uh, work with players, and, and you do it all. And so it's, it's cutting that pie up into what, is, what time of year are is the most important three Mm. and you know you make sure that you hit that and and i think recruiting has always got to be there right right so how how would a coach know if they were if they just have a lack of motivation for recruiting or if they're just a reluctant recruiter yeah and that's the kind of an it's you know i don't know i don't know i think it is motivation Mm. you know um because, you know, if they were, you know, if they, they really got a fire under them, they would not be reluctant anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So some of the reluctance typically stems around skills and knowledge, right? So if I, if I have an accident on the phone, what do I say? So you need to work that out, right? So you got to have something to say. Mm-hmm. And then you, the, the, but the key is that you listen. And that you ask questions, um, and and that's how you define. That's how you really get at what it is they're looking for. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's probably more of a motivational mm-hmm. thing than a reluctance thing. Okay. And then with the the top performers you've you've worked with again in the sales world, you know, I think you've talked about before how how nobody really can completely eliminate their um, you know, some of their self-consciousness or some of the interferences yeah. that, that are coming their way. They just, they find a way to manage it. I guess the same with an athlete that is everybody feels nerves going into a sporting event, but it's, it's how those, those athletes manage those moments. So, so how would you encourage coaches to, 
to kind of manage those interferences when they sit down, they know they want to make five recruiting calls at 10 o'clock between 10 and 12. And now it's 12.03. They've only made one call and they've busied themselves with other other things. How, how can they manage <laughs> the procrastination and, and all the other, uh, I guess, negative thoughts coming into their minds as to why not to make those calls? Well, I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> I don't know that there, that, you know, I mean, it's, you just have to do it. I mean, this idea that there's a shortcut or there's a strategies or techniques to overcome, you know, everybody, everybody experiences discomfort. Mm -hmm. Every performer, I don't care if you read Andre Agassi's book, you know, it's full of discomfort as a performer. If you read Bruce Springsteen's book, it's full of, you know, he's the greatest performer in the modern era. Mm -hmm. And he's scared to death, right? And so there, there, there are examples of really good performers. Brett Favre, you know. I mean, all these great performers who were scared to death before they stepped on the field or the, or the court. And so it's not a matter of eliminating these thoughts or these uh, discomfort. It's, it's you've got to lean into it. You've got to make yourself, you know, uh, make the call. You know, I mean, uh, you can develop some affirmation statements that get you to make the call. Uh, I think the other thing that you get with people is, you know, I'm not ready yet. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a killer. It's a killer. Um, you don't need anything more than what you have right now. This idea of, well, I need to study a little bit more. I need to prepare a little bit better. And, you know, I'll call next week when I'm ready because this is minimal. Everybody's got a chicken list right? Mm -hmm. Every coach has got a chicken list. And, and so what I would suggest for coaches is write down all the names of the players who you've been meaning to call, but have been putting it off, right? Mm -hmm. So that's your chicken list. And then knock out one of those calls every day and mm -hmm. just make the call. Um, and so we have these, you know, this gremlin that's inside of us that wants to keep us small, wants to keep us scared, you know, let's keep us where we are. And when we're engaged in any kind of like, you know, risky behavior, which this is a risk, you know, I could, what if I, what if I can't answer a question? I'll, I'll, I'll look stupid. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's a risk. And so whenever we're going to take that risk, you know, the gremlin is going to be, Oh man, remember last time. Geez, made a and so we've got to manage that gremlin and make the call. And, um, you know, that's just, you know, I don't mm -hmm. know. It's, so there's some stuff you can do mm -hmm. with the gremlin and those kind of things. But ultimately, it's you, you cannot become confident by sitting around. Right. You have to act. I mean, that's the only way you're going to be confident. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's reassuring for for coaches just to hear that that those top performers are have their struggles and they have their own doubts, but but they're taking that action regardless. And so, uh, yeah, again, coaches are not alone in their feelings around this. It's just uh, the uh, the more I guess successful ones in terms of of uh, getting the recruits that they're they're hoping to get are the ones that are are managing those interferences. So, so you have yeah. um, a, a definition of high performance. Can you share that with us? Yeah, yeah. So when you think of a performer in any domain, um, it's and if we took skill level out because 
high performance is different than elite performance. Elite performance is skill-based. You cannot be an elite performer without having a lot of skill, mm -hmm. right? But you can be a high performer. Every A 12-year-old could be a high performer. And this is basically getting 85% of your very best out 85% of the time. Mm. And the reason I love this, right, is because it takes 100% off the table, which, by the way, it's never been on the table. There has never been a sport performance where they gave 100% effort. There has never been a performance where they got 100% of their ability out from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And so this, if this idea of 100%, is, you know, we say, oh, you give 100% effort, 110%, whatever it is. And we need to stop that because when you go to an athlete and say, look, 100% doesn't even exist. We're not even trying to get there. Mm -hmm. But if we can get 85% of your very best out, 85% of the time, now that, that's something that everybody can do. Mm -hmm. And now that becomes the, 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 the floor. Because now if you, can, if you can develop the skills and strategies to do that consistently, now that 90% is right there. You know, so now it's like, okay, how do we bump it up to 90%? Hmm. And, you know, so that's, um, that's kind of like, you know, I think it's refreshing for athletes to see it that way. Mm -hmm. Because even, even the great Ben Hogan said, well, I've got seven bad shots around. Yeah. Right? And so when he would go play, he would hit one bad shot. He wouldn't freak out. I go, okay, there's one. I got six more. <laughs> right? And yeah. so that's just, you know, it's a different perspective that really frees you up. Because, you know, one of the, you know, the biggest uh, performance killers is when we judge mistakes. You know, when we, oh, it was terrible. That was awful. And we've got to accept it we, and, in performance, not in practice, but in mm -hmm. performance. You, you've got to accept it and move on. And what happens is they, they judge it, they analyze it, they break it up, and then they say, okay, let's, let's do it again. And, and so they're, they're going to make the same mistake over again. Mm -hmm. And so it's really getting them to accept um, uh, the mistake. And that's what Hogan did, right? They missed one, okay, that's fine. So just, we had six more. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. Yep. So what are some of the other choices high performers are making that, that others do not? Well, I think, um, well, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. I, I, I think, the, you know, high performers, the one I really like is they do touch and go with mistakes, right? And so when you make a mistake, they don't dwell on it. They just like a plane doing a touch and go, you know, land and take off again, right? So you, mm -hmm. you understand it, what happened, you're rational about it, and then you take off, you let it go, boom, all right, next one. And so that's something that's really helpful, uh, I think, for perfectionists. And then, you know, the idea that, you know, they, they make a choice around, you know, not being perfect. You know, it's, it's, it's okay to, um, you know, be authentic. And if I'm authentic, then I'm going to make a mistake. And that's okay. Let's move on. Let's keep going. And so that seems to be a good one. And the other, the other one is that they don't tend to use you know, um, fear is a primary motivator mm -hmm. and f fear is good to initiate action, right? It's ne it will never, ever sustain 
it's never enough to sustain you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we've got to sort of replace that with my desire to perform better or, or you know, the love of the game or that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's mm. kind of that stuff. Yeah, so so obviously coaches spend a lot of time helping their players deal with the ups and downs of the seasons and the wins and loss, but, but do you have any strategies you give to coaches to help them deal with the inevitable ups and downs and, and pressures they feel with coaches or with coaching, um, especially during their season time? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're asking athletes all the time to manage discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they lose when they're not supposed to lose, whether they're in the weight training room and they're having to push hard, which really, you know, I don't really want to push hard right now. You know, these, these are areas of discomfort that really test who we are. And so are we going to learn to manage this period of time that is uncomfortable and and so uh, 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 so when you start doing that and you see yourself do it uh that's where confidence comes from it comes from really the management the 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 effective management of discomfort Mm -hmm. and you work through it you get beyond it and it's like man that was great and so then you go and you a little more comfortable well we need as coaches, we need to look at how well do we manage discomfort right. because we're asking our kids to do it all the time. And so it's when those periods of time where you're uncomfortable as a coach, you know, are you complaining to your sport administrator? Are you complaining to your assistant coach? Are you, you know, you're, are you doing the things you're asking your kids not to do? Mm-hmm. And so now it's like, okay, let me look in the mirror and again, that's a really hard thing to do, and that, and it's it's hard for athletes. And we ask athletes, oh, look in the mirror, right? Well, maybe it's as coaches we should look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And what are the things that uh, about this job that really make me uncomfortable? And what are the things I need to be doing to be successful? Mm-hmm. And those two, when they when they when you find there's uncomfortable things I need to be doing that make me successful then you've got to lean into it. And, and, and if you do, if you do lean into that discomfort on those things that are going to help you be successful, you will get through it. You will get to the other side of it. And when you're at the other side, you look back and go, man, that was so great. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I did it. And so that's, that's what we get athletes to do, right? So that's what we have to do as, as a coach is really find those things that, 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 interconnection between discomfort and success and then i need to be doing this and then start doing it right oh that's great advice um how could coaches maybe find ways to keep uh players engaged um you know over the summer months keep them uh reminding them of of the team culture and the expectations and and obviously these players if we are on lockdown by then uh, are going to be extremely bored they're probably frustrated that that they're at home with mom and dad again earlier than than anticipated their summer school has has been canceled maybe internships things like that i mean do you have any advice to coaches as to how they keep their their team's uh culture in place how they keep them engaged um what what kind of things yeah that's a really good point i mean 
you know, so we're, 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 we are on spring break, our Colgate university. And, um, you know, this week is a spring break week for us and the students left campus on Friday and they're not coming back. And so we have online courses, uh, starting on Monday. Uh, and our coaches, of course, are, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on and, and, um, they understand that the kids are just bored to tears. Uh, and this, we haven't even been a week yet, right? So, I mean, I can't imagine what's going to happen today. Uh, it's, it's going to be really interesting. But so one of the things we're doing here, and I've got, I can send anybody copies of these as well, but we have a, a journal, uh, put together a high performance journal for student athletes that is a way for them to track mm. Um, and, and add structure, track their goals and add structure to their day. And so it, it gets them to think about a vision. It gets them to think about uh, long-term and three-month goals around, you know, mental, physical, technique, tactical, uh, rest periods and academics. And, and so they, and then they are, it's, oh, oh, they plan the week out. Um, and, and they execute the plan and they've got three months of that journal, uh, that, uh, we're sending out, uh, and we may have sent out yesterday. So that's something I think is, I that a lot of these kids need, they need, I know the ones at Colgate really need structure. They want structure, you know, and so it's a way of helping mm-hmm. them provide that. The other thing we're doing is, uh, putting together a, a culture workbook. Uh, I don't want to call, I don't necessarily call it culture building, but it's sort of reviewing, uh, the culture that you have. And it's meant, it's meant to be used uh, remotely. And so everybody has a copy of the workbook and it basically walks you through five steps, uh, that, um, you know, bring you to this idea of, we have a purpose, we, you know, and so you meet, basically you go through, it's nine weeks. You meet once a week on the phone or on the uh, video conferencing system where for two hours, um, it can be the entire staff. It can be uh, with some of your, some players, again, it depends on the size of your team. It could be with all the players uh, where you talk about, you know, our purpose and it gives you ways sort of, uh, format to use to get through that. And then you, you, what are our values? And you get through that. What are the behaviors around those values? And then, you know, so it's, I think it's going to be a pretty good thing. But I do think the benefit of the journal and the culture workbook is a way for coaches and athletes to connect, you know, and, and to be, you know, sort of with a coach calls you, you can ask you about your journey, it gives you something to talk about, right? Um, and then when you're doing the journal thing, you're basically all sort of teleconferencing at the same time. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think I think for a tennis team, okay. it would be awesome to get everybody on the team because uh, you know you may get what twelve players, then that would be you know it's a good size. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, that would be amazing yeah. if you, if you yeah. want to share that with me, and I'll, I'll yep. push that out to our coaches, and that I think they'd really appreciate that and. 
and uh, are looking for a lot of ideas with these uh, unprecedented times. So thank you, Bill. That's that's brilliant. Well, look, uh, we we'll, we'll go back to our boring day now. And thank you for coming on the on the podcast and and for your sharing your your wisdom and your your passion uh, really came through there. So um, I thought it was great, and, and hopefully our coaches get something. Right, out of it. So thanks again, Bill. Right. See you. Bye. Thanks. Bye.